Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest, uh, frequent guest on our program, he's been with us a number of times through the years, is Bruce Stanley, who has been serving as the CEO of the Methodist Home for Children now for 18 years. And the Methodist Home for Children has outgrown its original uh, challenge of being an orphanage to being uh, an organization that serves not only troubled youth, but also in family intervention and, and other numerous problems that deal with youth and families. Bruce, we want to talk a little bit about uh, alcohol and drug abuse because this is always a concern. Uh, and I want to start with binge drinking because that was a serious problem uh, a couple of years ago. Has that gotten any better or are we, do, are we still faced with that problem? I think we are still faced with that problem. And it is... Um seems to me that anytime we take a step forward that we take a couple of steps back as well and you've got the proliferation now um, not only of alcohol in the traditional forms or with beer but you know with all of these um, different seltzers that are being sold in all kinds of flavors and you know White Claw might be the best known brand but it seems that Seagram's and everyone else out there has got them and they're coming in raspberry and blueberry and all kind of flavors and that is, has become a challenge, particularly for underage drinkers, um, for us to shut down and to try to divert. And it's a problem. And, of course, you've also got the problem with smoking and vaping. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the um, hopefully the uh, vaping is going to get under control and uh, be legislated out. We made tremendous progress, progress uh, with diminished cigarette use uh, because of legislation. And um, you know, vaping is um, definitely something that for a period of time, and again, you get back to attractive flavors and, and where that is seen as um, an easier thing to access than cigarettes. And for whatever reason, started to acquire um, some legitimacy. But that, that is a tremendous problem. And if we're... We have... Go ahead. I was going to say, and you've got to include uh, marijuana use in there as well. And with marijuana being legalized in 16 of the 50 states, I think you can make the argument um, that the discussion is already over and the direction in which it would seem our country is moving is clear. And in the minds of many youth, even though we live in a state where it is still illegal, in their mind with what they're seeing and what they're experiencing um, online as well as uh, in the community is that it must be fine because it's legal somewhere else. And that has become a challenge, and we're seeing that prevalent as well. And it's also coming in attractive forms. Apparently, the fruit flavors are a good idea for all forms of marketing uh, because you've got gummies and beverages as well that are laced with uh, THC. Which is uh, unbelievable that someone would manufacture that, but that's aside from the point. That's almost, well, it is criminal. I, I'm sorry to say it's almost criminal, but it is criminal. In North Carolina. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 21, is that the appropriate drinking age or does age really not play in a, as a factor because it, they have access anyway? Don, that is a difficult question and, and that's probably something that we can discuss uh, for hours on end. I think you can make um, a good argument for 21 uh, being the age based upon um, the you know, results we've gotten from diminished drunk driving 
and what we know about adolescent brain formation and the prefrontal cortex, the center for logic and for executive functioning uh, being something that arrives later in boys than in girls. And so on one hand, that seems to make some great sense. On the other hand, culturally, I think we know that when somebody goes off to a college environment or when they go off to a military, they're you know, looking at that as being an arbit 21 as being an arbitrary number and thinking at age 18, I can die for my country and I can vote, but I can't have a beer. And that doesn't seem to make much sense. And so I think that having it at age 21 is disingenuous um, for those particular reasons. And then I am afraid that at age 21, that that does invite more binge drinking. You get on a college campus, somebody's going to go to a sporting event or perhaps to a concert, and so they're going to pregame or preload and start doing shots and tossing down beverage, beverage after beverage in order to get that done before they uh, get out the door. And I hate for that to be the case. We have tried a number of ways to educate young people about the dangers of substance abuse. Are we making any progress? That's a constant educational battle. And if we make progress, I'm going to say that it's incremental. And I don't want us to be discouraged by that because it's person by person and case by case. We know that just say no was massively ineffective. Um, that what we have to have is something that is tailored toward an individual and proper behaviors that are modeled by uh, adults that are respected and uh, close by and adjacent to, um, to adolescents in the community and in their lives. And so we do have to continue to try to educate and, again, model in our own lives the appropriate use and appropriate behavior. Royce, this is away from uh, drinking, but it is uh, a change and uh, many of the parents probably are, are facing this as a question. But when you and I came up, uh, we could not wait to get our driver's license because we thought that was freedom. All of a sudden, we could go places and do things that we could not do before without a driver's license. But nowadays, I understand that a large number of teenagers either don't have a driver's license or don't even want one. What is bringing that about? I am mystified by that, Don, and I've got a, a niece who did not get her driver's license until she was 23. And what makes that funny in my family is that my brother, who lives real close to her, is actually a driver's ed instructor and has had his own vehicle. And her uncle uh, would have done it for nothing and taught her, but she simply didn't want the responsibility. And she was able to get where she needed to go by just bumming a ride with friends and hitching with other people. And in conversations with her, I don't know that I have, was ever satisfied by any answer she gave other than to say, yeah, she just wasn't all that interested in it. I think that's a fascinating change, I, you know, because uh, I would think that uh, kids today would still see this as a way to have more personal freedom and more opportunity to uh, to go to concerts and you know all sorts of things but i guess it's not and i think it i think it broadly falls into the category of uh, what young people are now calling adulting and that has become a phenomenon in which they are now what is what is that <laughs> adulting that that means when you're having to take responsibility for your own life pay your own bills earn your own paycheck and uh, get yourself out of bed and to uh, school or work on time 
and uh, get yourself to bed at a reasonable hour so that you've got enough energy for the day ahead of you. And I think that driving just falls into that category. That's amazing. So are you dealing with that with families that you're working with? We are. And with the issue of the and the broader issue um, in and around adulting um, has to do with developing skills. One of the programs that we have that we're going to be doing um, in September, we call the real world. And we bring children in who are in foster homes or children in who are in, who are in our group homes. And then onto the campus, we'll bring, for instance, a used car dealer who will bring half a dozen cars there for them. We'll bring insurance agents and we'll bring some landlords in who've got some lease agreements. And then at the beginning of that day, we will give monopoly money in different amounts to, to different uh, youth. And then they've got to go around and secure an apartment. They've got to get insurance. They've got to figure out how to pay for an automobile uh, based on the uh, dollar amount that they've got and the income they have and make sure that the peanut butter goes all the way across the bread and that they're living within their means. But it's a, usually a tremendous shock. And I would have thought uh, before I came to Methodist Over Children that 15 and 16 year olds would have had a good sense of this. But the amount of surprise that we've got um, and is shown by our young people um, is fascinating to me. But we, we consider this to be enough of a challenge that we do make it part of a dedicated event as well as the teaching that we do all along the way. That's a fascinating concept. That that probably ought to be carried over to the public schools, and uh, because uh, that uh, that's one of the things I guess that uh, public educators assume is being done at home, but in reality, it's probably not. And part of our staff uh, work on that on an ongoing basis is teaching children how to grocery shop, and we'll take the youth into a store. And for many of them, it's the first time that they've ever known that you can do comparison shopping based on price and that the per unit cost is right there, you know, on the label underneath of the product. And there's no need to pay $2.23 for the can of black beans. You can pay $1.19 instead and then keep that uh, extra dollar in your pocket. Well, that's, uh, that's a really practical approach. I'm, I'm amazed. I would be surprised if that's not, not something you should do with adults as well as uh, uh, the uh, adolescents and the teenagers and those uh, in your child care. Well, that's a, that's a big part of our work with family preservation and family reunification. And when we are asked by DSS to go into a home and work with a family, that initial exposure is usually 20 hours a week for the first three weeks. And, one, and it is rare when one of our caseworkers goes into one of those circumstances where the family actually has a budget in place and that's part of the structure that they try to give them and one of the things that they show them is that you need to have a budget and beer shouldn't be the first item on it uh so uh, how much of your work now deals with families uh rather than just the children aspect of the family life we are primarily a child welfare agency, and we do enough mental health work uh, to ensure the integrity of the child welfare piece. And our emphasis is always upon the children and youth, but we know there are families attached to them. And so in every, every program we've got, we have some component that is family-oriented. As a, for instance, if a youth is assigned by the court to one of our multi-purpose homes, We've got a family service specialist, and while that child may be with us for 
240 days or for a longer period of time, uh, depending on the wisdom of the court. During that time, our family service specialist is going out and meeting with the family and trying to get that to be a, a structured and healthy environment so that when the child returns, they're um, able to be not only reintegrated, but um, perhaps integrated into something that's a healthier environment um, than the one that they came from. And so we're always trying to work and trying to keep the family intact, if at all possible. Not always possible. So how do you gauge success? And I know it's, you're dealing with problems, so you're not going to solve every one of them. So what what percentage of solutions do you feel like is is something that you has a, have as a goal? Immediate goal for programs that we operate. Sometimes those are easy to um, easy to assess. Uh, in the world of juvenile justice, our number one metric is going to be the uh, rate of recidivism. Uh, does someone recommit a crime? And if they don't show up in the system within 18 months or within 24 months, we're considering that to be a tremendous success. And, and we do have great outcomes with that kind of work. When we're dealing with young people who are in foster care, one of the things that we're always trying to gauge is progress on their relationship skills, but also how they're doing academically and the kind of work they're doing in school. But if you're going to ask me in an ultimate sense, how do we know we succeed? It's a long, slow dance. And if we've got a 15-year-old who's in our care, we're going to consider ourselves to be tremendously successful if when they're 35 years of age, they come into the home at the end of a day of work, kiss their wife, whom they've been married to for several years, sit down at the dinner table with their child, say grace over their meal, then we'll consider ourselves to be incredibly successful. And we may not know until that time. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at, uh, because it is a long, long range project in, in almost every case. And, interesting. And, yeah. And for each one of those components, a lot of things have to go right. Yep. Absolutely. Bruce Stanley is our guest. He's the president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. We'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. 
Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Bruce Stanley. We've been focusing today on the family and children, and because that is his role as president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, where he is now entering his 18th year of service. Bruce, we've talked about all sorts of things, but one of the things we have not talked about is funding. Of course, your organization has to have funding, and of course, the government has to fund a number of these programs as well in different ways, not only with the school system, but with the law enforcement and the court system. So let's talk a little bit about where your funding comes from at the Methodist Home for Children. And we are a public-private partnership. I would like to argue that we are the finest example of that in the state of North Carolina and perhaps anywhere in the way I conceive of the world. This is how it ought to be, that no one has enough talent and or enough financial resources to solve all the world's problems. But collectively, uh, we can collaborate and we can work together. Our, about 85% of the funds that we receive are fees for service and come from public sector, and so that would be fees for doing foster care, fees for the residential programming through the Department of Public Safety and Division of Juvenile Justice. There would be some money that would be allocated through the NC Pre-K program, and some of our early childhood program, we've got children who are being sustained um, because the families are come from low income, and so they qualify for voucher programs. And we, the rest of the funding that we receive comes from the community, from individual donors, from businesses, and from congregations, and of course, direct funding from the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. But for each one of those about 1,300 children, youth, and their families that we're gonna serve each year, we've got a funding gap to cover the true cost of care of about $1,600 for each one of those 1,300 family units. And we began a program several years ago to help market the funding gap that we call 1K for one kid we probably should have rounded up instead of rounding down. Um, and that is an uh, important component of the work that we do. And without that, we really can't provide the, the best care and the best individual um, treatment for everyone who comes to us. You mentioned during one of the breaks that uh, one of the biggest problems right now is finding those who are willing to serve as foster parents. Yes, and foster care, not only in North Carolina, but really all across this country, is in crisis now, and it is because of a lack of available foster families. Currently, Methodist Home for Children is turning away 17 children for every referral we are able to accept and every child we're able to place. And the reason for that is we need foster parents. Things are so difficult, particularly um, in urban areas, uh, where you've got larger populations, but you've had children who are in the foster care system that have been sleeping on cots in the uh, offices of Health and Human Services in Wake County, and it's true in other counties in North Carolina as well. And that's uh, just unconscionable that uh, no one ought to have to undergo that and, and live with that experience. And being a foster parent is not an easy thing. It really has to be a high, holy calling. The training in order to um, begin doing foster parenting is significant as you would want it to be and it's uh, about 55 hours um, that you have to commit to do uh, in order to get your foster parent license and we're asking that you not only open your home but that you open your heart and that you be willing to fall deeply in love um, with these children that are placed with you but 
we would love for folks to contact us either through our website at mhfc.org, that's the agency's initials, methodistomeforchildren.org, or to pick up the phone and call and, um, and come and go through training and see if this might be a way in which you'd be willing to serve. One of, the, one of the challenges that we have with training foster families is that in order to make the right placement and to keep from putting a, a square peg in a round hole is that you need some slack in the chain. So if, for instance, we're going to have 100 children in care on any one given day who are in foster homes, we probably need to have about 135 foster families that are trained and, um, and ready to receive a child. What about state funding for their programs outside of the work that you're doing at the Methodist Home? And of course, a lot of the funding, as you said, does go to your, your organization. But is the General Assembly uh, providing enough support where it's asked for these days to um, uh, answer these questions? We mentioned earlier that in many cases, it's not a matter of funding. It's a matter that the uh, uh, the answers are not available. For example, we mentioned the school psychologists. Uh, they could pass a bill to put one in every school, but there's not the labor supply is not there. Right. So, and, and, which which comes first? What's <laughs> it's a chicken and egg situation. Uh, it, yes, it, it is in some circumstances. The legislature has uh, stepped up the last couple of years and increased, for instance, uh, funding for foster families. I still think that the funding needs to be uh, increased beyond that. Anybody who's raising a biological child knows that that is not a money-making endeavor. And the things that uh, you're required to buy, much less the things that you would like to buy, um, don't get less expensive on any given day. And so while we have had an increase in foster parent rates, I'm going to argue that if we had even greater resources available, that more people would be drawn to that. And it's not that somebody would go into that as a for-profit business, but they would simply perhaps be motivated to go into it knowing that they weren't going to lose their shirt and that it wasn't going to be beastly expensive for them. And and so that has been something that the legislature has, has done and done well, and we uh, trust that they're going to continue to be attentive to that. We also know that the legislature stepped up and provided funds for raising the age. And uh, we're into the second year now of that in North Carolina has uh, gotten w with the rest of the country. And so they provided additional funds for treatment and for services um, for juvenile offenders. And that has been a heartwarming and good thing to see. What about our juvenile justice system? Is that system working and is it properly funded and manned? Um, I'm gonna say that the resources that are generally allocated by the legislature for Department of Public Safety um, tend to be good, um, but they can be better. The real problem and the real crisis that's facing the Division of Juvenile Justice is that they are terribly understaffed and they have got outstanding leadership with the uh, Deputy Secretary uh, William Lassiter uh, among others and a visionary team who really have a therapeutic and, and treatment approach. They know it's important to be smart on crime. You can't just be tough on crime. Uh, you've got to be smart on crime and they are that. But they need um, court counselors, which is the juvenile justice term for somebody that's a probation officer, because the caseloads that they're carrying now are just unmanageable. They need um, staffing for their residential facilities and, and their programs because they've got people who are administrators who spent their entire career at a desk who are now pulling shifts uh, in the youth development centers, which is North Carolina's name for a youth prison. And they, they are in the midst of a staffing crunch. And, and of course, 
better compensation is uh, one of the ways to address that issue. Well, you know, it sounds like that the all of these various programs, not only in the school system, but in your work and also the juvenile justice system and so forth, it sounds like you're facing the same problems that uh, business is uh, facing, and that is manpower shortage is just prevalent everywhere. 100%. And uh, I am a firm believer that COVID accelerated some trends that were already present in our society and our culture, and they surely did accelerate this one. And I look at those uh, unemployment numbers and see that they've fallen. And uh, it's hard not to get discouraged because um, we need more staff at Methodist Home for Children as well. Yeah, I know everywhere you look, you see signs we're hiring and so forth. I mean, it's, it's in all walks of life. Certainly, I mean, our company, we have a large number of openings, but almost everyone I talk to in business or in, or in government is saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. We have jobs available, and in some cases, the, the compensation is there, uh, that it's adequate, but there's just not people to fill it. What other lessons did you learn from COVID during that period of time that have been useful uh, in your work now? One of the things that um, we found out with regard to COVID was that we need to get a whole lot better um, as an agency with regard to technology. As you can imagine, with a group of employees that are primarily drawn from the School of Social Work and or Schools of Psychology or Education, a lot of those people are not real tech savvy. And we face uh, some real challenges when we work county by county with departments of social services because they've got differing software and not all those programs um, are unified. And so we were still doing a whole lot of uh, chart and note keeping uh, by hand and having to collect and collate those at the end of the month. And since we weren't showing up at the office and since we, for a brief period of time, uh, you know, administration um, had to close, we have be begun developing and actually we're you know, working with a software development firm so that we can do real-time uh, charting of the interactions and the teaching uh, of skills that is done by our staff with the youth who are in our um, group homes. And that, that, has been, that has been something that we have, um, an adapt- adaptation that we've had to make and something that's worked well for us. If you joined our program late today, we discussed the, the, uh, gang situation in the first segment, and that is a a big problem. So you may want to go back and listen to that segment. But is that your number one concern right now, and that and gun control? Uh, Certainly those two are at the top of the list of challenges that we face and of um, capacity to do the most significant harm, I think, think without a doubt. And you had referenced, Don, that you and I had grown up an age in which those things were not presenting themselves in the same fashion and they, they do pose a tremendous threat. So now if someone wants to get more information about the Methodist Home for Children, uh, how about giving us the instructions on how they can do that and how they can become volunteers and perhaps even uh, foster parents? Our website is mhfc.org, and we'd be happy for anyone to visit that and to contact us as a result of that so that um, we might begin those conversations be happy for you to uh, pick up the phone and call. And if you were to call 919-754-3636, uh, 
that would ring onto my phone and um, be happy to direct you to the right place and get the process started. Well, it's a it's a problem that we all are facing, and uh, thank goodness for the work you're doing, and also all the many volunteers and also the paid workers who are working in these areas because it is so important to what we're doing. Uh, again, uh, we had uh, many, many topics. If you join the program late, you may want to go back and listen to the entire broadcast. And of course, we have a number of stations that carry a 30-minute version of the program, and so you're missing two segments. And if you'd like to hear those two segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and you can hear not only those two segments, or you can share the entire broadcast with a friend. Bruce, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look forward to you being back uh, again soon and, and hopefully with uh, more good news. The program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises to be faithfully, as he does each week, that he will have another interesting guest with another interesting topic for us next week on this entire group of stations all across North Carolina. And so until next week, same time, same station, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.